Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Susan Kalman, and welcome back to Susan Kalman's Mrs. Brightside. Thanks for downloading the show. You know, imposter syndrome is always present for me because I am literally making this up. I got expelled from school when I was 14, never went back to education, never went to university, have blagged my way into this room to have a chat with you. Yeah. So... I mean, it's like an audience with a queen, I'll be very honest <laughs> with you. A lot of people have tried to get into this room and have failed. I mean, many a time people meet me have said it's an audience with a queen. <laughs> yes. But... <laughs> Last year, I spoke to eight people about their tricksy mental health, and this year, I'll be chatting to eight more. Um, so in the same way, when I walk past a group of people, I feel that judgment, and it takes me back. That sounded like I was getting emotional. It was just a, <laughs> no. a fly. Oh, God, the, the producer was really hoping for that. It's great when a guest starts crying. Me or a guest, he, you'll oh, take I can, either. I could pretend. No, no, we need the truth of it if we're going to get the podcast award next year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this because I want people to be more open about their mental health. And I know sometimes it can be difficult to define what that means. So we're going to be having a frank and open discussion. No parameters, no written questions, no definitions and no pop psychology. It's important for you to know that these are not therapy sessions. I am not a qualified psychiatrist, no matter how much casualty I've watched. They're just honest conversations about what we think and feel about our own heads. Scotty was someone I sort of knew before our chat. All I can say is an hour was certainly not enough. I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, listen, you were my uh, request. Oh, were you? Yeah, you were my request. Was I? (laughs) Yes, you were my request for this. Was I? Yeah. Oh, why? Because... Other people were busy. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, good. Shut up. Jack was on season one. No, because... Um, I think what you, uh, I keep up with you on Twitter and all that kind of stuff, and I think uh, what you're saying is something that isn't necessarily heard in a long form. Or popular. Or popular. <laughs> and do you know what, do you know what? It's, it's interesting, I think it's the same as in series one, I was insistent about speaking to Bethany Black, because people talk about trans issues, but they never actually talk to anyone who's trans. And it makes me quite annoyed. Yeah, right. So I, I think it's important if you're... Because we're, we're talking about mental health and we're talking about politics and everything. And, and I just think that you've got a viewpoint which I think is interesting to talk to. It's uh, a compliment, me. Oh, thank you. It's a compliment. Thanks very much. So what you're sort of saying there is, like, you know, if you're going to talk about people being mental, you should get someone who's mental on. Yeah. Yeah, great. We've not had anyone on yet who's <laughs> mental enough. Well, here we go. Everyone <laughs> <laughs> strap yourselves in. Uh, before we start, mm. properly, we have been recording since the moment Good. you came through the door, um, I, I like to start by getting my guests to introduce themselves. As you can see, I have no questions in front of me. This is not an interview where I've... I have prepared. Prepared, but I think if you read out questions, it sounds a bit shit. Oh, right, here we so, go. So it's meant to be a discussion where I feed off what you're saying to me rather than I have a planned way this is going to go. Yeah. We just see where it goes. It could That's also be read way. as laziness, Susan. Well, it could be, but I'm not a lazy person. I want you to, I want you to say your name and yeah. I want you to say what you think you do. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, my name's Scotty. Yep. And I think I'm an artist. Right. Oh, it's so embarrassing. Because when I grew up, when I grew up, still doing it, really, um, that weren't a proper job. Mm-hmm. Still it still isn't really, if I'm telling the truth. I still think, this is a good way to get money for a rope, isn't it? <laughs> Just lie. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it over there. Yeah, let me say this thing that's really important here. Mm-hmm. Give us a tenner. Um, my nan thinks I'm like Julian Clary. <laughs> right, right, right okay. but, and, and I mean, in some ways, she's right. Yeah, you know, don't cast aspersions, please. But uh, I mean, yeah, but that don't bother me. Sometimes when people are really lazy and they see, um, big fat Nelly, FYI, people listen to this. I'm a fat person. Okay. Um, 
they think comedian. Mm-hmm. I've never ever called myself a comedian, and I I really love it when people go comedian, mm-hmm. comedian Scotty, because I think you literally it's just that fat funny thing. You fat and possibly funny. Yeah. So that's your job. I saw you, first of all, at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern with Amy and you were doing a kind of a performance piece. It was at uh, Burger Queen. Yeah, which is now called Hamburger Queen right, for legal okay. reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I right. thought, how can I get away with this? I'll just put ham in front of it. <laughs> so, Hamburger Queen. Truly one of the greatest nights of my life because uh, Sue Pollard was one of the other judges. and R.I.B. She's not well, who knows? Do you know what I mean? You've got to cover all bases nowadays. And I used that in one of my shows because I remember hearing the story that Sue Pollard always carries a party popper with her in case something exciting happens. <laughs> and I asked her, I said, is that true? And she went, yep, and pulled out a party popper. And I've continued to live my life as if I was Sue. Imagine if living your life with a party popper waiting for something exciting to happen. OK, but, OK, here's the testament of the story. Did Sue Pollard mm-hmm. pop the party popper? She did. So it was she did. Exciting, at, she right. did at Hamburger Queen. Which I mean, <laughs> did Sue Pollard pop a party popper? Is a definite new way of warming up, right? <laughs> it really is. It really is. So I saw you do performance piece. Uh, you were at the Fringe. You're back at the Fringe. So you're at the Fringe this year. <laughs> um, and I saw a post that you put up that you were quite nervous about the Fringe. I'm absolutely bricking it. It does right. make me nervous. Um, the judgment is frightening. When you live with a brain like mine. To, to live with this anticipation of will anyone come? Will they stay? Will people who write for things like it, will they say no? Will someone tap you on the shoulder and say, ah, worked it out, actually, you don't know what you're doing. You're making this all up. Um, it's the imposter. And the imposter, you know, imposter syndrome is always present for me because... I am literally making this up. I got expelled from school when I was 14, never went back to education, never went to university, have blagged my way into this room to have a chat with you. Yeah. So... I mean, it's like an audience with a queen, I'll be very honest <laughs> with you. A lot of people have tried to get into this room and have failed. I mean, many a time people meet me have said it's an audience with a queen. <laughs> yes. But, uh, no, I feel, I feel like there is going to be this moment where people say, um, no, that was rubbish, and go back from whence you came. Um, and I come from extreme precarity, and those have left scars on uh, not only my body but my brain. And yeah, I think going into that competitive environment only exacerbates those feelings. I think. And then sometimes I think, like my friend Bryony, she's a performance maker and a theatre maker. Very fancy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are people who... Uh, we don't do 55 minutes, we do 57. <laughs> um, and we, like, she constantly is saying to me, I'll fucking pull it together. Mm-hmm. Have a word. <laughs> You've gone through much worse. And I think, yeah, sort of. I always remember I was asked on uh, Strictly Come Dancing just before Blackpool, we have to do these VTs, uh, where they say to you, how do you feel about things? And the lovely producer woman was said, so how will you feel if you don't get to Blackpool? And I was like, well, I'll probably be all right. And she said, no, how terrible will it be if you don't get to Blackpool? And I was like, honestly, I think, I think I'll be all right. And she said, no, but how bad would it be if you didn't get to Blackpool? And I said, look, I tried to kill myself when I was 16. I think I'll be OK. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think, I, I think if I don't get to Blackpool in a dancing competition on the telly, I'm going to be all right. They didn't use it, obviously. They didn't use that answer. But it is, you know. Now, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Okay. So I'm going to start off because uh, recently I'm quite often asked why I keep yittering on about being a gay. Um, and f- for me, I think I, I informed my politics when I was at university, um, at school even, Section 28, Clause 28, and then throughout university and then fighting for equal marriage, as I did for many years, and then everyone told us everything was fine mm-hmm. and everything is not fine. And actually I feel more angry, despondent, emotional now than I think I felt in a very long time about what it is to be LGBTQ in this country right now. Uh And I think we share that from what I've seen you talk about that I think it's worse. Oh, It's not worse, sorry. I feel worse about it. When you see the pictures of those two women on the bus 
in London. Mm. That I, I think I cried for about three hours when I saw that. Yeah, and I think the frightening thing is how desensitised I became to that image very quickly because soon after there was another story about a guy being strangled until unconscious in an area in London and soon after that someone was on trial for stabbing a guy in Northampton and two people were like like being trialled for that and then soon after that a 13 year old boy was robbing some uh, queer people at Knife Point uh, just outside of Liverpool and the daily abuses that now have come into my email box from queer, trans, non-binary folk saying to me, this has happened, what do I do? As if, like, I mean, and I'm more than willing to give that space and that love, but for young people to come to me because there are actually no services available to them or no way where they feel that they can turn to is, is disheartening. Because I got into this game when I was like 14 with um, a theatre company called Spare Tire. Radical lesbian theatre company, making work about fatness. I mean, you can see why I became the person that I did today. <laughs> um, like, they literally spotted me in the corner room and thought, right, we're having that one. <laughs> she could come. <laughs> so I hung out with them and we were having those conversations then when, about what we were fighting for. We were trying to get schools to sign up to our free education programme, theatre and education. I mean, it was, I mean, looking back, it was a little bit naff, but, you know, it was the late 90s. 1997, I think, was just yet to happen. Um, and, yeah, it does feel like we're, like we're fighting for our survival again. It does feel like, like the flimsy pieces of assimilation equality uh, that has been led by a, a particular organisation in the UK uh, could be just taken away from us very, very simply. Because um, the way that party politics is going is being led by people who don't want us around. Don't yeah. want us to be able to have rings on our finger or to be able to like legally register our marriages to have uh, the same equality laws as uh, other other folk that we we work with. Well, I mean to me, um gay people don't need to get married. This is the thing. You don't need to, if you don't because I know a lot of LGBTQ queer people don't agree with equal marriage and that's fine don't get married. I personally wanted to get married. Yeah, so me too. I wanted the choice. I wanted the choice. Exactly. But the fact that to me, and it still makes me annoyed, that 25 minutes from Glasgow in Northern Ireland, they don't have the rights that we have in the rest of the UK. For a start, is an absolute scandal. The North is next. And the the issue for me is that these things are being, we'll deal with it another time, this will go there, and it, or they're political bargaining chips to get support for a party for Brexit. That they're buying, they're buying away the equality rights of of people in a in a part of the United Kingdom for a political reason, and we're being used as these kind of bargaining chips instead mm. of as human beings. And I think it's the dehumanising of us, which we spent so long trying to persuade people we weren't paedophiles and sex beasts and plague carriers. Mm. That it seems to be regressing hugely. That you can beat us up in the streets; it doesn't matter, does it? It's just a queer. Yeah, there is a devaluing of our bodies, but there is. A, I think there's a devaluing of lots of different bodies at the moment. Devaluing of people of colour, the devaluing of uh, working class bodies. We've seen the value that has been placed on the lives over the last couple of years, particularly with Grenfell, about how important it is for uh, working class people's lives. We've seen how important it is for queer and trans folk. We've seen the media completely go for for trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming people for like two years solidly and we're now looking at data which shows an 81% increase in transphobic reported violence and hate crime reported and I think it's always really important when we're talking particularly around queer and trans issues that we acknowledge there is a massive unreported mm -hmm. there's a massive stuff that you and I know that will get called stuff and you just think it's not worth it today. Or people look at you in a funny way and take photographs of you or, like, are mocking you publicly. Always, usually in my instance, always blokes who are in groups more than two or three will always find the opportunity to find some way of devaluing me. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is about devaluing. But oh, I don't know. I feel so powerless to it but so angry about it because what's also happening at the same time is this kind of pride assimilation right we're seeing like people um uh, issue a sandwich 
for gayness. Right, that'll do. There we go. We're getting multinationals who sell kettles, changing their logo to the rainbow colour, you know, just in case you felt insecure about buying a kettle, Susan. Mm-hmm. You know you could go into that shop. Because that's a gay kettle. I can, I can buy that kettle from a lesbian tea. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise known as a kettle. A kettle. Yeah. I can buy that kettle from a lesbian tea and I'll feel pure about the with situation. With your ghoster? Absolutely, with my ghoster. And your Glenda? Yes, absolutely, my Glenda Jackson. <laughs> she missed a trick there, didn't she? <laughs> she did. So, but I, and I know I was at... Um, I actually don't go to Pride very much anymore. Well, it's not protest, is because, it? Because, well, like this parade is the thing. of capitalism and everyone being like, oh, it's all all right, it gets better, we're all OK, when actually you just want to go, are you for real? I got into an argument... I got into such an argument with someone about Pride, um, I think last year, or the year before, I can't remember. And it was about, I think it was about the DUP and it was about all of that stuff that was happening. And I think London Pride was happening at the time and it wasn't mentioned. And I was I was thinking, you know, you really need to mention these. This should be something political. And they said to me, oh, you know, let, 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 the, let the queer community have fun once in a while. And I said, it's not about, it's not about you not having fun. It's about, it's 50 years since the Stonewall riots. Mm-hmm. So those people, they'd had enough. At the risk of their own life, they fought. And I did a documentary, which was repeated on the iPlayer recently. Uh, it was 50 years of decriminalisation of homosexuality in uh, England. Mm. And which has actually got a way catchier title. Uh-huh. It's the partial decriminalisation of sex between men in England and Wales. Yes. <laughs> it was much later in Scotland and even later in Northern Ireland, if you can believe it. But that's exactly it. It's like, like I, I did loads of work around that time, 1997, 2017, and I, I remember just being like put on stages and people being like, just say whatever you like, because, you know, it's like gay 50 year. And I just began to have this mantra where I was just like, next year's 51, Mm-hmm. Will we still be talking about this then? Because is it that we just fancy round numbers? Yeah. There were I spoke to some, some lesbians in Manchester who were telling me about what used to happen. So basically, the police and some straight folk used to come down to the gay pub on a Saturday night and basically hunt them. Basically hunt them and beat them up. and Or they were taken away and given frontal lobotomies. Or oh. they were, you know, whatever. And And... The point of this is I spent such a long time in my early life. I've never felt shame over being gay at all. It's, that's not the reason I've, I've got mental health issues. It's the one thing in my life I've always felt quite certain about. But, I was, but what I was aware of was that society didn't value me to a certain extent. And so my self-esteem issues have, I think, I've always been trying to prove something, I think. And, uh, you know... Most straight kids never really have to talk about sex with their parents. Whereas I had to sit and go, I'm coming out to you, I'm declaring my sexuality. And our lives, I think, as as, as LGBTQ queer people, is so different. And I fought so hard mm. to have self-esteem that it just feels like it's creeping backwards. I am um, problematic coming out for me. I came out watching the Jeremy Carl show with my mum. <laughs> okay. <laughs> was, well, you know, I'm, I'm counsel. Jeremy Carl show was a, more like watching a documentary, really. Do you know what I mean? We were kind of watching the lives of our own being unfolded on telly. And I remember there were two what my mum called gays, as in, you know, the plural. That's yep. them. Yeah, the, the telly. My mum was yep. like, do you think they're gays? <laughs> and I just went, OK. <laughs> and she handed me the home phone and she went, you can tell your friends now, can't you? But, so there's a big age gap between me and my brother. I remember, I think my brother must have been about 16 or 17, and um, talking about his then-girlfriend. And my mum said, well, you know, at some point your brother will tell me if he's heterosexual or not. And I thought, (laughs) that's the future. Yes, please, mum. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, mum. I have to tell you I'm straight. Well, my mum has my brother in the phone, right, as handsome son. Do you know what she's got me in the phone as? <laughs> Fabulous, son. <laughs> Absolutely gutted. Could you imagine? Do you think there is... Um, I'm trying to think how to say this. An absence of of will amongst some people to actually fight just now. And I don't mean fight physically. I don't mean the physicality of taking to the streets and fighting people. I think perhaps some organisations 
um, some people could be doing more to make when when the when all of these things have been happening, I, I feel there's a void of comment, perhaps from people who should be saying more. Yeah, agree. Retweet. Amen. All of those things. Yeah. I think what we we're seeing personally is the legacy of 20 years of curating this gay assimilation. So being like, it'll be all right when you get older. And then big uh, charities saying to the world, we're just like you, honestly. And uh, we now see people who were our enemies, people who staunchly thought that we weren't like them, um, co-opt the LGBTQ movement. Um, and uh, particularly the right and the centre-right are doing that. And I think what we're seeing is the... And we're seeing this sort of, like, pride turned into this slow parade, depoliticised, deprotest, and we've now got a generation of LGBTQ people who are depoliticised. There is no... And, or a lack of history. People don't know how recent it was for legislation to be passed. So when people say to me, how long have you been with your partner? I say 15 years. And they say, oh, you're married? I say, yeah. And I said, but we only got married when it became legal. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, how long have you been married? Four years. And, and I, like, I feel like that is my absolute duty to keep on reminding people, this isn't status quo. This hasn't always been the way. And I'm very lucky that I grew up and just before all of the markers were coming into place. So I think I was like 15 when Equal Age of Consent was coming in and then equality law and civil partnership and then equal marriage. So just before all of these markers that I was reaching, these things come into place. But they're political things, right? Mm -hmm. They're political things which are led by activists, which are led by community groups, which are led by people rallying together and saying, actually, we've had enough, who put pressure on. It's not led by assimilation. It's not led by people being like, honestly, we're like you, and whatever you give us, we're grateful for. No, I'm different. I have a different set of cultures, a different makeup. I am different. I'm different. So I want to be acknowledged for that difference. I'm going off on one. No, no, you're not yeah. at all. You're not at all because it's one of the things that's quite, that's important about. I remember I've got um, uh, two friends called Laura and Laura. They're that's lesbians. Not confusing. They're together, Laura squared. And they said to me, When did you get engaged to your wife? And I said, We didn't get engaged because when we got together, you couldn't even get civil partnered. Mm. This is a very recent thing. You didn't get engaged. You, they got, it was beautiful. It was lovely for them. They got engaged on the beach and all that. It was, I'm so pleased for them. Yeah, but, but also. Come on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't have done that. We would, no, but we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have done that. Um, I had to basically force my wife into marrying me, I'll be honest. No. But what I mean by that is, like, is there never any sense of re- re- like resentment when you're like, Oh, you don't know what it's like to not be able to have it. I think, um, I mean, when I first came out, there were, or when I first started going to gay bars, which was, you know, 15, because that's where you had to go. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's fascinating because people, lesbians especially, used to join, people say, why are lesbians so political? And it's how they used to get laid. Because there were no lesbian bars. <laughs> so they basically joined a protest march in the hope of sex. <laughs> That's why lesbians are political. Because, well, because gay, men, gay men mm. had clubs, mm. right? Lesbians used to go walking on protest marches and hope they would, <laughs> their cordial would attract another lesbian. And when I was coming out, when I was coming out, the women's library was the only thing in Glasgow there was. Lovely women at the women's library, still there, still incredible. They used to have the women's library discos on like the the, the fourth Wednesday of the month, mm. and uh, you know someone would start a fight and they'd put Katie Lang on until everyone can calm down. But that was what it was. That's mm. what it was. Now what that it makes me appreciate things a lot more. I I wish. The fact that I have been spat at in the street, this is years ago, by the way, before the Daily Star writes as some form of article about I'm suffering homophobic abuse now, I'm not. This was years and years mm. and years ago. Um, people used to wait outside the gay club when you were coming out. And I think maybe this is part of my anxiety. I'm constantly waiting. I'm still constantly waiting for someone to say something to me about the fact that I'm gay, actually. I think it probably am. I think that constant waiting has changed into I'm waiting for the violence. Yeah. Now that that has been legitimised. 
and that's been legitimised in public space. And do you know what really gets me? It's not the, the mudslingers, it's not the ones who are throwing it at me, it's not the ones who are punching me, it's not the ones that are laughing at me. I recently had a truck veer off the road and onto the pavement to try and scare me. A truck. I literally jumped out of my skin. And it, those aren't the ones that annoy me, because I know where they stand. I'm like, OK, you don't like me. Right. At least I know. It's the others around me that are pretending they can't hear with their earphones, that everything's completely normal, that don't stand in any form of solidarity with anyone receiving any form of public abuse. The ones that just think, I won't be the one to intervene, I won't be the one to step forward. Those are the ones that I, I just can't understand why they wouldn't stand in solidarity because I tell you what those are the ones that like to call themselves the allies Mm -hmm. those are the ones that like the parade they love the drag race they love all the drag they love to go down to the gay bug oh love a gay Mm -hmm. love a gay me Mm -hmm. until push comes to shove and Mm -hmm. that is that is where I feel in uh, unjust but I do I'm, I'm I'm with you I'm waiting now I'm waiting for the next thing more than more than ever and it's really strange I never, I, for a long time, I forgot that violence could exist, I, genuinely. Uh, and I wouldn't hold hands with my wife necessarily anymore. Really, I wouldn't. People don't understand what gay panic is. They don't understand if they're cisgendered or heterosexual or both. Wow, those people exist. Um, like, they don't really understand what it is to Google... Is so-and-so safe for gay people? Is this hotel gay-friendly? Can I hold hands in this place? They've never had to do that. They've never had to think before they hold their partner's hand, am I safe? Mm -hmm. They've never had to think before giving a partner a kiss in public space, whether or not um, it's safe to do. And something that really annoys me is something that I've done and continue to do is sometimes I give my partner a one-armed hug goodbye because we might be read as friends. Mm -hmm. People who are straight have never had to confront that. No. I stayed at a and b not that long ago um, in a small place in uh, England. And the terms and conditions, I was trying to find it. It must have been the days before Google Maps. (laughs) And it said, I was just reading it, I hadn't booked it, and it genuinely said in the terms and conditions, no stags, no hens and no gays. And that really wasn't that long ago Mm. that it said, and people go, that's against the law, doesn't matter, does it? doesn't matter when you turn up at a place and they say, I mean, we even, my wife and I checked into a hotel not that long, really not that long ago, like six months ago, I said, Susan Carmen, give me a key. And the receptionist said to my wife, and you, and she said, no, we're together. And you you would have thought the Antichrist was staring at her. She mm. just couldn't even comprehend what was happening. Oh, it happens all the time. I, the, the thing that um, I often get is two rooms, is it? Mm-hmm. No, the same room. Twin beds? No, <laughs> just the same room. That thing that's in front of you that says double bed... That, that wasn't gonna, a mistake. Wasn't gonna, a mistake. We're going to sleep with it together and we're going to have it off <laughs> in <laughs> we, your hotel. We, we weren't going to, but we are <laughs> now. Now we are. And you know what? It's going to be filthy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be screaming your name. What's your name? <laughs> Marie, the receptionist. I'll scream your name the whole time. Full title, Marie, the receptionist. <laughs> Marie, the receptionist. <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Apart from apart from that, which I think is a and it's funny because um, LGBTQ issues can be made light of. Uh, Hannah Gadsby's show was quite interesting in that she changed the narrative, I think, about the reality of things. Mm. Um, the other thing that you talk about or your shows are about is body image mm-hmm. and how people perceive you in the way that you look. It's a big fat tent on Tessie, is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, I didn't say it. It did. It was written all over your face. It's actually now, written on those notes. Yes, non-existent <laughs> notes. Tell me if I'm wrong. One of the things that you talk about is the fact that in the LGBTQ community, being not stick-thin or not washboard stomach is means that even in our community, you're perceived differently. To take that whole acronym, I feel, is to accuse all of that acronym of being body-shaming. Now... As I affectionately love to call and have done, the lesers, my lesbian fam, I have never received... The reason I use that is I am paranoid about people saying that I've forgotten to say things right because terminology currently in the queer community is one of the most terrifying things I've ever encountered in my life. But I think we should fail and get it wrong a bit. And, I agree, also... I agree. This is my concern. When I spoke to Bethany Black, I said the thing that is concerning me about the trans debate is I am petrified of accidentally saying the wrong thing because I don't know, because I don't spend my whole life in feminist debates, in trans debates, in queer debates. I'm concerned I missed the memo <laughs> which tells me what the wrong thing is to say this month. Well, I mean, so it, it, so yeah. as a result, I don't engage. And I think a lot of people don't engage because they're terrified of saying the wrong thing. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not doing memos anymore. It's definitely facts. We've moved on to that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think... It's all right to come out... If you come at these places with generosity and nervousness and say, I'm willing to be educated, or if something comes up... I was in a meeting the other day and someone went, GNC, and somebody said, what does that mean? And I said, gender non-conforming. And they went, oh, thanks very much, I feel really silly. And I was like, no, it's all right to ask questions, because that's how we all learn. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We all learn. So, taking the acronym... Full acronym. Lasers are fine. LGBTQIA+. Yes. yes. It's a mouthful. Yeah. But aren't we just? Yes. To, I've never received body shaming in lesbian or queer space. Never. All the body shaming towards me has always been in gay male space. It's always been gay men, like, in groups and packs, having a laugh at me at my expense. I've had two gay men try to set me on fire in nightclubs in separate parts of London... I mean... Not, I on, not on the same night. Not, that'd, be, <laughs> that'd be really unfortunate. Well, because they're, they're actually doing email rather than memos, so they're getting a bit quicker. And no, they're, um, like, I, I remember both of those incidences and thinking, what is it that's so offensive about me, topless, in a pair of pants and a pair of stilettos, on a bar at 4am in the morning? Mm-hmm. What's, you know, what's that? Come on, that's a laugh, isn't it? Um, I was, like, about 18... And uh, Channel 4 had sold me this story that being um, a Nelly, I would go out on the scene and there'd be a bloke called Nathan and uh, I'd walk down the street and we'd all be holding hands and it would just be like Queer as Folk. Just, it would just be like everyone's having a laugh, everyone's getting off with each other, someone's in the corner having a vodka and Diet Coke and someone's mum turns up. Great. All of the things that I want in my life. And I remember one of the first nights I went out on the scene, I was in the queue for the 24-hour cafe to get um, my tea for afterwards, because, you know, priorities. And I was with my now husband, and these group of queens turned around to me and dressed me down. And they were probably in their 40s. And I was 18, I was very young, and I looked very young. And I just burst into tears. And I didn't know what to do. So I just sat on the pavement, crying. Because um, I was vulnerable. And when I reflect back on that story, I think, how can members of the same community like do that? And then this when you have to remember, well, you know, they're still men. They're still men. They've still got that aggression. They've still got that socialised dominance that they feel like they can do that to me. 
um, and have done repeatedly. Um, One of the greatest fallacies in, in life, I think, is the phrase the gay community, though. Because <laughs> people think... I mean, if you speak to older lesbians, older lesbians and gay men did not like each other. They didn't mix mm. with each other at all. There is a, this incredible idea that we all have, we all get on with each other and we, we all support each other. And actually, that's not always been the case and certainly isn't necessarily the case now. And a lot of women don't want to socialise with gay men mm. at all. And th- there isn't necessarily... And we don't all automatically support each other at all because we're human beings. Mm. I mean, I have to say, I, I hated gay clubs because I felt very, very, very judged as a short, plump, badly dressed lesbian next to... Look everyone, at you now. Everyone wanted, everyone wanted to look like Anna Friel. Because really? she was, yeah, because Brookside was on at that point, and everyone wanted to fancy someone who looked like Beth Jordash. I was seeing in my day, it was um, Jodie Foster. Everyone had like a poster of Jodie Foster in the bedroom. Basically, it was thin, thin, because they're, they're, they're just as they're just as interested in how you look as anyone else. And I remember mm. I used to stand at the end of the bar in the polo lounge in Glasgow. It just. It, I remember, I, I've never told anyone this, but saw it. So I really, try, I've got no fashion sense. I've got better, at literally appalling. As in, I just don't know what to wear or what suits me and nothing fits me and it's terrible. So for some reason, I bought this baby blue V-neck jumper because I thought, please don't, nobody, please nobody fucking tweet me about this, about what a twat I am. I thought Michael Douglas, I think it was probably, it was maybe Fatal Attraction or it was the one where Demi Moore, the money, I can't Anyway, he was dancing in a club with no T-shirt on but just the V-neck jumper, the blue. And I thought, that is the, that's the best. That's me. That's a bit of me, that is. <laughs> so I was standing in Glasgow in a blue V-neck jumper, wondering why nobody wanted to have it off with me. <laughs> and I, I still get the heebie-jeebies mm. if I walk past a group of lesbians because I think they're looking Judgment. at me and thinking she's ugly and she's fat and she's you know whatever. And so mm. I still, I feel very intimidated by a, a, a group of lesbians is like my my scary place. A group of lesbians we used to say is called a murder. Mm. I used to call it a fingering of lesbians. <laughs> Maybe if the slipper fits, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's so interesting that even now, with all of the brilliant things you've put into the world and all of the cultural capital that you have and the visibility that you have, you still walk past that group of lesbians and think they're judging you when you they're probably thinking, that's just some I just That's a head lesbian. I no god balding, I'll be after you. Um, I still I still just feel I feel my mental my depression and anxiety, I'm always transported back to those awkward times. Mm. So it's either school or it's basically Delmonica's in Glasgow at about the age of eighteen or nineteen, where I would just literally stand hoping to God someone might at some point notice me because I just wasn't I wasn't what they wanted. Oh, when you're the fat kid, talk about myself. I, I, I include my. I mean, I, 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 I'm better than I used to be in that I'm healthier because I used to drink a lot, smoke a lot. I'm actually quite healthy now, mm. but I wasn't. I'm four foot ten for fuck's sake. If I was six foot tall, I'd be a size six. It's not my <laughs> fault. I've been squashed down. When you're the fat kid, right? And you've been uh, also when you're the fat. Big Nelly, like, you know, I was such a queen. Like, hello, not much has changed. You imagine me at school turning up, hello, I want to play with the toys. Like, I mean, I was, I remember first day, third day, seventh day, all of those memories of school, very early, early school, hanging out with the girls and then them saying, you can't play with us, you're a boy. And then going to play trains with the boys and then them saying, you can't be with us, you talk like a girl. And from that moment onwards, being the fat, like effeminate queer kid, I've, it has shaped everything about how I interact with people. Um, so in the same way, when I walk past a group of people, I feel that judgment and it takes me back 
That sounded like I was getting emotional. It was just a, <laughs> no. a fly. Oh, God, the, the producer was really hoping for that. It's great when a guest starts crying. Me or a guest, he, you'll uh, oh, take I can, either. I could pretend. No, no, we need the truth of it if we're going to get the podcast award next year. <laughs> Not this shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, I, I interact in those spaces and in social spaces as the fat kid. Now, that can mean two things. It can mean that I'm fearful of how people are interacting me interacting with me but it can also mean that I'll spot the other weirdo in the room and I'll go up to them and I'll be their best friend because I know exactly what it is to be the loner I know exactly what it is to be pushed out just because of the way that you look or the way that you sound or the way that you are and so I you want to see honestly my Instagram is full of absolute weirdos that I've just met on nights out that I feel like I've got to be your friend because no one else will (laughs) And that's how I met Sophie Hagen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the fatness thing has really shaped who I am. And it's because, well, you know, I come from a long line of people who are mental and who have got proper stuff with food. And that has manifested in me as well. And I carry that with me as well. So it's, I think it's hereditary. I think it's socialised. I think it's trauma. And I think the way that that is then manifested in the way that the world interacts with me has often been in a violent way. Um, so, yeah, that's why I do things like Hamburger Queen. Beauty pageant, talent show for fat people, where fat people are like the stars of the night. And it really winds people up on the internet. They're like, you're celebrating fatness. Yeah, I am. And they want me to defend it. They want to go, yeah, but it's unhealthy. Nah, who cares? So smoking, smoke drinking. Mm-hmm. Like they really want me to defend this place and they get so angry that I'm just complacent in fat. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, but what about if you get diabetes? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like this constant trying to, again, back to devaluing. The fat body is devalued always, always. And like whenever you see it on the news, fat people don't have heads. They are literally waddling bellies down a high street. That is what fat people are. There's an advert on the television just now, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not shaming anyone for attempt trying their best, but it's for some form of I don't know beauty or whatever, and it's meant to be two plus size women not caring about how what people think of them, and they're going swimming anyway, and they're into, they're just normal women. They're not even plus size women. They're just normal women. They've got really flat tummies as well. It's yeah. like this, you know. But this is their, this is the attempt. We better. We better do something. We better do something. And I, I saw the other day there was an advert for clothing which goes is, goes from size twelve to thirty two, but they've got a size twelve model oh. modelling the clothes. Now I know from my own point of view it is very difficult to buy anything. It's very difficult to get people to. When I have to give my sizes for a job, uh. I've I I'll be honest. I have sometimes felt ashamed. Really? Yeah, because I feel that they're going to judge me because I'm I'm bigger than the other girls who are going to be there. I had a great experience mean? early on when I was getting measured up for something. And I was in that sort of space as well. And I said, I made sort of light of it. Because that's often what you do, right? You kind of make like, I'll make the first joke. I'm going to make the first joke about it. I own it. Mm-hmm. No one else. And someone just said, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just a number, isn't it? And they just started writing down these numbers. And I was like, oh... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just a number. I remember that really, really clearly. They literally just couldn't care less. Couldn't care less. They're literally just writing down. They want you to get out of the way so they can do the next one. The one thing in my life, if I could change one thing about my anxiety and everything else, it's about the way I look. I spend most of my time being... Most of my depression and anxiety, you know, in the past few years, is about this. And now... I know I can't change how tall I am. Sadly, I'm a short arse. But I, I'm, I really... And it's it's wrong because I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, you know. But I do get anxious about how I look. And I wish I could be comfortable. If I could wave a magic wand now, it'd be to com- be comfortable with the way I look. I think people find that quite difficult about me as well. Because I'm on the internet mouthing off about, like, I'm fat and I'm brilliant. And quite often on Instagram... I ain't got my top on, but purely laziness because I love to be at home with no clothes on because that's just who I am. Um, when I feel very insecure about the way that I look, when I, it takes me a while to get out of the house, when I'm, like, pottering around the house and I know what I'm doing, I'm, like, stalling, leaving. Um, when you when I'm second-guessing myself, thinking, oh, can I do it today? Oh, I don't know if I can get out the door. Um 
and I say this to my friends, I say, oh, I'm having a bad day. Like, oh, not, not you. You're never like that. What are you being like that? You're not. That's not you. That's mm-hmm. not you. And my mum once said something to me when I was suffering with what my mum calls the blues and my granddad calls the nerves and uh, I call depression. <laughs> Just call it by its actual name. <laughs> Fucking dickheads. It's like me suffering from the vapours. <laughs> oh, I've got the vapours. Um, and I said to my mum, I keep on telling people I'm not well and everyone is telling me, oh, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. And my mum, in a flash, just turned around and she went, it's because they're so used to you being well. They want you to be well. And I think that can be such a lonely space when people don't understand what it, is to be all and nothing. So I don't live with the constant, oh, my God, this, how do I feel about my outer shell? Some days I leave the house and I think, yeah, I definitely would have it off with you when I'm looking in the mirror. I think, God, you're quite gorgy, actually. And it's then when the public interact with me, I realise, oh, maybe I'm not. That's when the questions start to come in. Mm-hmm. It's the way that other people interact with my body. Or that, right, when people walk around my body, like they give me like a six-foot clearance, as if I am the size of an actual house. Mm-hmm. They've taken that very literally. Um, that that manoeuvring around my body always makes me think I am way bigger than I actually am. Um, but if if you're not if if you're not constantly in that space, like if you're not constantly the friend that's got mental health presentations, if you're not constantly the friend that feels loneliness, if you're not constantly the friend that's living with anxiety issues, people find that very hard, that you're different people. They, want, they, they just want you to be the thing that they want in their head. Yes. And if you're not, they can't hear it. I think it's about it's about that it's the holistic view of and it's my argument about the way that discourse is going just now and that people have stopped looking at people as as whole people in that I think there are probably some people who voted conservative for a reason. Right. So after I'm, that, I'm listening. No, 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 no. I just think I, I think we judge people by one thing. One thing. And having grown up being judged for being gay, I am very against that. So as soon as someone says to me, they're awful because they are X, I go, hang on a, hang on a second, have you checked the rest of them mm. and what they're like as a person? And I remember on the Strictly tour, I had to do the Wonder Woman routine where I was dressed as Wonder Woman doing a samba. And that was a very difficult routine for me because I thought I looked like a twat. And on the tour, I would say every night, this really helped me because I lack self-confidence. And people in the audience would laugh because they couldn't believe that I would lack self-confidence. Because you would, why would you think that I lacked self-confidence when I'm strutting around like a whatever on the stage? But the reality is I have no self-confidence. Because there's a real distance between that person that's doing that on stage. That's a gig. Yeah. Do you know you're, what I mean? You're, you're a character, you're, a, you're playing yeah. a role. My dad's a roofer. <clears throat> My dad's, like, don't... Oh, is this analogy going to work? Who knows? We'll see it through. Let's go for it. Yeah. <laughs> My dad goes onto a roof. Does he get judged for being... I don't know. What I'm trying to say is is that when my dad goes to work, my dad goes to work, and it's work, right? Yeah. And um, I don't know where I'm going with it, but there's... I, I, what, I don't know. Um, I think it's, just, it's what you're saying, though, about... I think people like simplicity as well, so they don't like to think of the complexity behind. And also, there's a ner- do you know what? I think there's a nervousness sometimes when people say, "Not for me." I'm delighted if someone's having personal issues, uh, but you know, I'm not feeling great. Some people go, "Oh God, Jesus Christ, oh, God. I'm gonna be stuck with a depressed one now." And people don't want that. I think sometimes. Um, we haven't got long left. I have to ask you about other things. Have you done the real? Are you okay? That's that's my favourite test. Yeah. When someone goes, um, uh, well, you can ask me, am, am I okay? Are you okay? Well, mm, no. I left the house three weeks ago. I'm very tired. I've got therapy tomorrow morning. Uh, there's some issues going on with my family. My nan's got Alzheimer's. Um, I'm worried that I haven't exercised in a bit and I'm worried about the effect that that might have on my mental And you see people and they just actually don't care. They just want you to go, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. But honestly, give it a go because mm-hmm. it's a good who. Mm-hmm. 
And it really tests the people in your life that want to listen. That's it. I saw two people on the train. Honestly, this is what I want in my life. There were two people on the train, an older couple on the train, and they were talking to each other. Well, the woman was doing most of the talking. But the guy was looking her straight in the eye and listening. And I haven't seen a conversation like that in a long time where he was going, this is great. And she was talking and they talked the whole way in the journey. And I just thought, oh, my God, that's brilliant. You're actively engaging in a conversation with your wife. I've not, And it was beautiful. And I've really given, I've given my, <laughs> what happens is I see these things and I go home and I shout at my wife, even though she wasn't there and she doesn't know what she's done wrong. So I just went home and went, right, from now on, when we have a conversation, I want to know that you are listening to me. By looking at me. <laughs> and laughing every time. And she goes, what have I done now? I went, nothing. I just saw this couple on a tree and they were talking to each other. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, because mm. it's something very rarely discussed, mm. I think properly, is class. And yeah. you talk about that in your shows. And tell me about that and yeah. how that impacts you, mental health, your work, all of that kind of stuff. Well, call it the C word. Okay. Because it's often the word that aligns with the other C word that people just don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. They behave in a very similar way. You say, oh, I'm working class people, oh, chip on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, if you, like, it wouldn't be so much of a chip on my shoulder if, like, growing up in precariety was a bit of a laugh. Do you know what I mean? Actually, it can be really difficult. And it's shaped. The bed that I was born in, I was born in the middle of the 80s, to a single parent, Irish migrant, on the day of the Brixton riots, has shaped everything that has ever been in front of me. The way that I talk, people judge all the time. When I work for other parts of this network, people say to me, can you say that again, but can you say it, you know, let me just say it a bit softer. Or they go, oh, just say that bit again. No, say it again. Well, see, if you keep on saying it like that, no one's going to listen. No one's going to be able to understand what you're on about. So it, it follows me all the time, um, and the effects of growing up in precariety is kind of what I'm looking at in the new show, Class, um, which it, essentially it's a list of all the things that have happened to me and the kids around me as a result of being forgotten by the state, as a result of our parents not having the same amount of money as other people, as a result of um, growing up in substandard social housing, as a result of the legacy of Thatcher. Um, So we talk about what it was when, in sort of a light-hearted way and a dark way, of what it was when I was probably about five or six, six or seven, and uh, the council forcibly shaved the heads of kids on our estate because of knit infestation. What it is to grow up with women who use toilet roll for sanitary goods. What it is to grow up around attempted suicide, prolific attempted suicide. Um, what it is to grow up with um, the men who were favoured to eat, so the men at the table and women had to stand. Uh, what it is to grow up in domestic violence, prolific domestic violence. And when we talk about domestic violence as well, we often think in our heads that picture there is of a, a, a mum or a dad beating up a mum. But actually, that, that violence can actually be, be on to children as well. What it is for me, I grew up in the eighth most deprived borough, um, at that time, um, 42% child poverty. Like, that has shaped my life, my mind, and the way that I interact in the world. But it's also made me feel really fucking unjust about everything. It's made me feel really angry that then when I came into the arts, I met posh people who had a room, a room in their house that they ate in. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. all that room was for. I remember being about 14 and I met someone through the arts, they had an he- edgy haircut. I was like, she's cool. I want to be her best friend. She's like, do you want to come to my house for dinner? Dinner, not tea. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Came round. They had stairs. I couldn't get through the door. I was, stairs? Stairs. Went upstairs. To, she had her own room. Went downstairs. Called her mum by her first name. Red wine. Everyone had red wine for tea. Like, I mean, culture shock. But it was at that moment where I started to realise everyone ain't gone through the shit that I've gone through. 
And this show is, is kind of looking back at people I grew up with. And often when we see these shows, particularly um, in theatre or fringe or comedy um, settings, it's like uh, these mates that I grew up in or, th- or these people that were around me, these people that are around me, most of them are dead because of class, because of precariety, because of the effect that that has had on their mental health, that actually their way of escapism was ending their lives. Um, that they navigated health systems and said to the health system, do not let me go. Now, this is a true story. Do not let me go. And they let her go. And she put herself in front of a train. I mean, that is the reality of what it is like to grow up, not poor, like in precariety. And what we're seeing now is the effects of 10 years of austerity. And we're seeing, I'm working in some of the most difficult contexts I've ever worked in. I'm working in spaces where there are children as young as nine addicted to Class A drugs. In areas with the highest rate of suicide in England and Wales. Where people have got locked in syndrome, where they can't leave the house. And we have government systems that are penalising these people because people can't leave the house. And it's a class war it's a class war. And the effect on the mind and the brain is so profound. The stuff that I am seeing, because I don't only make these theatre shows, I make big community projects and engagement projects and I make work in spaces where work doesn't happen. The stuff that I'm seeing in my very small world is absolutely eye-opening and disgusting, actually, that we, we live in this place of such wealth. Such wealth. But with such poverty. With such poverty. Yes. And aggressive po- poverty that affects people's lives. So that's kind of what the, the, my new bit of work is, is about going, stop thinking everything's all right. And to really try and disrupt people. And also to t- try and disrupt people's complicity within those systems as well. For people to understand, like, coming to a show ain't going to teach you anything. Sorry, it's yep. not going to teach you anything. It might be a gripping hour, but you're not. Don't leave that room thinking I now know. Yes, but it's just, it's the same way I feel sometimes about um, uh, people who go on. Sometimes people who go on marches think they've done their bit by joining in a march, and it's good, but it doesn't do anything. I, I find the accent thing very interesting because. Uh, I regularly, one of my favourite ever tweets I got was someone saying, it's lovely to hear a working class accent on Radio 4 because I was on the news quiz, because I was Scottish. Yeah. And everyone in Scotland's working class. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in Scotland's working class. Yeah, and regularly people will say to me, you must have had a really tough time as a kid. I was like, what? sorry? Well, you know, Scotland. And you go, right, OK. So there's the same thing in Scotland as there is anywhere else. We had electricity as well, which was a shock to some people. But Did that people, come before or after equal marriage? <laughs> it came after. <laughs> it was the gays that lit, lit the roads. Um, I find it interesting that people, because of my accent, people will say they don't understand me, which is a lie. Mm. It's a lie. I have a very, I've got a very posh, I, I can be very Scottish, but I also have a Radio 4 Scottish accent. Of course I'm understandable. That's them making a lazy judgement. Um, and it, the class thing is astonishing that an entire nation... Well, they want to think of us as urchins, <laughs> I think. Well, that's quite exotic, isn't it? <laughs> it's when I went up the chimney. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. I am not working class. and I grew up in a very privileged middle-class background that I, I still get working... I still get judged for being working class uh. because I happen to sound different. Um, I always like to uh, finish the podcast by letting the guest have the last word to say whatever they want. Now, that can be about politics. It can be about anything you want. You get to say the last word on anything that you want. Oh, no pressure then, is there? Yeah, but that's why it's good, because you've not had time to think about it. So you say what you, th- what you feel. I feel like the times are becoming more volatile and it's having an effect. I feel like it's having an effect on those of us with fragile minds. And I feel like austerity is going against us at the same time. And I feel like the services are under a lot of pressure to be able to support people like us. And it makes me really angry. And it makes me really angry that no one seems to really 
know a way out of it. And I also ain't got a clue. I feel really powerless. I feel completely powerless at the moment. Do you know what I do? I've got a party popper in my bag in case something exciting happened. Have you got it with you now? What would Sue Pollard do? No, because it's a security check at the station and it's technically an explosive, so I couldn't bring it with me. So, so not only... Not only have you set an expectation... And shattered it. Then, uh, Susan Cameron. <laughs> yes, Gordon. You're also a liar. <laughs> now, I want that clear, because I feel like you're hiding behind whispers there. I want you to say, I'll tell you what the last word on this podcast is. It's my name. Do you have any middle names? Grace. Grace, OK. So I want you to say verbatim to this, please. I, I Susan... S- no, wait for it. Don't patronise me. I, Susan Grace Cameron, am a liar. I, Susan Grace Cameron, am a liar because I didn't bring my party popper with me, so I can't be Sue Pollard. <laughs> Scotty, if people want to find out more about you, where can they go to? The internet. Yeah, where specifically? Where specifically? Do you know what? I think people should put more of an effort in. Do you know, we always have to do this old swipe up, here's the link, here's the link for this, here's my app thing. Just go on the internet and try and find me. Maybe that's a new game. No, OK, Scott, you're back. <laughs> Your PR is outside the door going, just tell them the name! Just tell them! the name. Um, uh, I've got a new show that's touring uh, called Scotty Class and I'm also touring a dance show that I made. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I made a dance show called Fat Blokes. Um, so, yeah, doing both of those for a very long time. Well, thanks very much indeed. And I'm sorry I disappointed you. Never a disappointment. Always a pleasure, always a chore. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Mrs. Brightside. If you like the show, why not subscribe? We're available everywhere you can download podcasts. And if you've already subscribed, why not tell a friend? Next week, I'll be talking to Isabel Hardman. Just think, well, why would you be an MP? Where's the, where's the benefit? It puts a lot of normal, decent people off and I don't think that's good for our politics because you then get, as you say, people who either don't care about the fact that they're being threatened and abused and told that they're worthless the whole time or you don't get sort of, you know, decent people going in and that really worries me. Susan Kalman's Mrs Brightside is hosted, appropriately enough, by me, Susan Kalman. The producer is Benjamin Sutton and is a BBC Studios production for Acast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.